With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Thursday edition, which means coming up in about a half hour's time, we have uh, Todd Corrigal in as Trudy Clausen's guest for this week. But to kick off today's show, it is Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. In broad strokes, what experts were predicting about Omicron has largely come true. It does appear to be less severe than previous coronavirus variants, and it is also wildly contagious, which is a problem, because even if the percentage of severe cases is lower for Omicron, the simple math of so many people being infected so quickly means that we're still winding up with a lot of people in hospital. According to CBC's COVID tracker, hospitalizations have shot up by 57% just in the past week in Canada. And the number of ICU beds filled also rose by 13%. It was in this context yesterday, Ontario announced a series of new measures, including shutting down indoor dining, cinemas and gyms, social gatherings limited to five people indoors and 10 outside, and the big one which we are really going to zoom in on today. Moving school online until at least January 17th. Quebec has already done the same and other provinces have extended their winter breaks because of COVID. Today, Dr. Brian Goldman, the host of CBC's White Coat Black Art and the podcast The Dose and an emergency room doctor here in Toronto on Omicron, school closures, and what these measures will actually accomplish. Hi, Dr. Goldman. Thank you so much for, for making the time to speak with us today. I know that you spent most of your holiday working uh, in the ER, and, and this is like your only day off in such a long time. So thank you so much for, for talking to us. Well, it's nice to talk to you too, Jamie. So, so I want to start with a general question in light of the Ontario government bringing in a bunch of new restrictions on Monday. And I, I mentioned some of these in the intro. Premier Doug Ford said the purpose of these measures was to slow the spread, to, to blunt it. Based on the current trends, our public health experts tell us we could see hundreds of thousands of cases every single day. If we don't do everything possible to get this variant under control, the results could be catastrophic. Do you think these measures will actually achieve that? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to remain optimistic here. I think that that they will slow down the spread of a rapidly uh, spreading strain of 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 COVID, known as Omicron. And one of the reasons why I'm optimistic is that is that if you look at the sharp incline, if this is a straight up vertical curve, it's just shooting for the stratosphere right now. And and when we have that kind of a of an increase in COVID, then I think we can hope that with some shock therapy to the system, we might actually get a rapid decline mm. in, uh, in the number of cases. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to be optimistic that, that two weeks is going to make a difference at this point in the cycle. Do, do you wish that, uh, measures have been taken earlier? Because I, I, I guess this sort of rapid acceleration was, wasn't exactly a surprise, right? We saw it in other countries in the UK and in South Africa. It's estimated 1.7 million people in the UK had COVID-19 last week, forcing many to pare back holiday celebrations. Joe Pachla is the Minister of Health for South Africa. 
the number of cases in the fourth wave have exceeded the peaks of the third, the second, and the first waves. The Omicron variant. Yeah, we saw it in other countries. The projections here from the science table in the province of Ontario said that this was going to happen. And, and the, you know, the fact that this period of time happens to abut directly against a holiday, mm-hmm. um, would have made it the perfect time to just say, look, let's do it. On the other hand, uh, the government didn't allow kids to return to school and start mixing and, and, and potentially uh, exposing themselves and exposing teachers to Omicron at a time when maybe there was inadequate infrastructure, inadequate HEPA filters and, and N95 masks. So that's good. So the fact is they didn't return to school and, and that means that, that they've accomplished what they could have accomplished had they simply said that the holiday will be extended. We need to prioritize the continued health and safety of our kids and our school staff. As a result, we'll be delaying the return to in-class learning for the next two weeks and continue with virtual learning for the duration of the time away. I know this isn't the news. I want to home in on schools now because you mentioned the Ontario government is, is saying that, that students will, will go online until at least the 17th. Also, Alberta and B.C. have extended their winter breaks until January 10th. Uh, although worth noting in B.C., kids of essential workers can, can go back now. I, I know for a while there was a lot of confusion about this, but... Do we know now whether schools are actually a major source of spread or is Omicron just a complete game changer? I I don't think we know enough at this time. Um, I think that, that Omicron is a, is a game changer. Also, I think you have to take into account the fact that, especially with younger kids, they are not fully vaccinated or, you know, five years and, and under, they are unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's take into account the fact that, uh, when you've got younger kids, they may not be able to wear masks. They may not be mask compliant at all times. If you don't have proper infrastructure in, in schools with, you know, HEPA filters uh, installed, if you're, if you're not equipping, uh, teachers to, to deal with the fact that Omicron is airborne. Uh, then, uh, then you've got a greater risk of spread of the infection. But, but Jamie, I think the, the other important point is not just the susceptibility of children, which of course is very important, but it's also the susceptibility of teachers. And I think it was highly likely that, that had the schools not been closed, for example, in the province of Ontario, you would have seen high rates of absenteeism among uh, teachers as they acquired the Omicron infection. Yeah, I heard the the Ontario's chief medical officer say today that he expects 20 to 30 percent absenteeism due to COVID in all sectors. Uh, at any given time in, in the coming weeks, we can expect across all sectors 20 to 30 percent absenteeism as a result uh, of Omicron spreading so rapidly across uh, Ontario. So our health system has to... Pretty high number, but, but just imagine a school with 30 percent less teachers in it, right? Um I know there are a ton of questions about how severely Omicron affects children. And and do we have any more clarity on that at this point? No, we don't have a lot more information about that at the present time. Um, In general, uh, you know, uh, unvaccinated children will not be affected as profoundly as unvaccinated adults. But when you have a large denominator effect, when you have many, many thousands of, of kids potentially being infected, uh-huh. uh, then if even a small percentage of them end up requiring hospitalization, it, it's going to be a large number. And, uh-huh. and, and it's a number that will potentially swamp the healthcare system. 
Right. A small percentage of a very large number is still a large number. a bit more about what's happening in the hospitals right now? I, I know you've been in them. Like, what, what is the picture right now? So it depends on where you work. The Omicron wave is arriving at hospitals. I'm working in the hospital. I'm going in every day. I can see that it's a problem, to be quite honest. I see that our beds are filling up. We lack the capacity to care for the patients. Even if someone isn't very sick with their COVID, if they're admitted for another reason and they're COVID positive, it's still um, a much bigger burden of care on the healthcare system than if they didn't have COVID at all. You know, I would I would say that over the holidays, the vast majority of the patients I saw uh, were uh, young men and women in their in their twenties and thirties uh, who had congregated together at bars and 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 clubs before they were closed down, but they weren't particularly sick. They had symptoms like scratchy throat, you know, sore throat, cough, mm. dry cough. Uh, they felt uh, fluish, maybe a bit lethargic, a bit of a fever, but almost none of them needed to be admitted to hospital. That. It doesn't mean uh, that absolutely none of them are hospitalized. You know, I I saw somebody uh, just yesterday in a COVID assessment clinic who who I recommended go to the emergency department because they were huffing and puffing. They were they were you could see that they were working hard to breathe, and that uh-huh. meant that they that they could potentially have a, a big a heavy dose of, of Omicron in their lower respiratory passages, meaning that they were at risk of requiring uh, ventilation at some point. I hope that didn't happen. The, the people who require are requiring ventilation, I guess the sickest people in the ICUs, are they vaccinated or unvaccinated? Well, the majority of them are unvaccinated. And, you know, we still have significant uh, numbers of Canadians who haven't been fully vaccinated, not as much as the United States, but but we're still seeing it. Uh, and and so they're at the greatest risk. Uh, and we're talking about people as well who have, you know, asthma, chronic obstructive lung disease, uh, uh, heart disease and other major, you know, medical illnesses that are coincident with getting an Omicron infection. Um, and we're also seeing breakthrough infections. And unfortunately, you know, I, you know, I certainly saw one person who had, uh, been vaccinated twice, uh, hadn't had a, a third uh, dose. And, and that person uh, was working very hard to breathe. And, uh-huh. and that person was almost certainly going to need to be admitted to hospital. So. You can't ignore the possibility that we can see breakthrough infections. And if you look at a country like Israel, they're already planning on a fourth dose. They were the first country to administer third doses, and uh, they're getting ready to administer fourth doses uh, because of waning uh, immunity or waning effect of, of these doses over time. That is the first part of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS FM. When After Nine continues, we'll have part two of that show. If you enjoy music from way back in the 50s and 60s, like old-time rock and roll, doo-wop, and pop songs, join me, Eric Bennett, Saturdays from 4 to 6 and now is Wayback Radio, where I play the music you enjoy from yesteryears. And join me again on Sundays from 3 to 5 for The Coffee House as I bring you an eclectic musical mix of folk genre artists and songwriters from past and present. I'll be glad to have you listening along for both shows, and it's only here on CFIS. 
Whether it's takeout, delivery, or dine-in, Boston Pizza appreciates your continued support for what has been another trying year. In appreciation, Boston Pizza is offering an amazing deal this holiday season. Receive a free $10 bonus card with the purchase of a $50 gift card, available online or in-store. Pop by either of their great locations to enjoy their awesome happy hour specials from 3 to 6 and 9 to closing daily. Cheers from Boston Pizza. Stay safe, Prince George. The Q3 Creative Business Hub is now open for space rentals at Quebec and 3rd. Rent a 100-square-foot office for as low as $470 a month, Wi-Fi included. Just need a desk to get out of the house? Use one in our open office environment for $260 a month, $160 for occasional drop-ins, or just $20 a day. For more information, email q3building at gmail.com. Q3 Creative Business Hub, open for desk and office rentals at Quebec and 3rd. Forecast from Environment Canada, cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries this morning, then periods of snow this afternoon. Wind at 15K, a high of minus 22 with a wind chill this morning to minus 36 and a risk of frostbite. Snow tonight, wind continuing, a low of minus 24, a wind chill to minus 29 with a risk of frostbite. For Friday, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries, a high of minus 21. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part two of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. I get why we don't want to overwhelm our hospital system. Uh, but I guess if I'm just a person out there, a parent or just anybody, really, I might be asking myself, like, what's the purpose of, of doing this for two weeks, right? Of keeping kids home for two weeks or in some provinces, just a few days, because won't Omicron still be around in two weeks? And won't it just rip through then? Basically, like if the goal is to slow down now to blend the peak, why would that change in two weeks? So what can happen in the meantime? Well, one thing that can happen in the meantime is that many, many more uh, Canadians can be, uh, can receive a third dose of their vaccine. And, and, you know, I can tell you that the, you know, I'm a vaccinator and, uh, and those clinics are working full tilt, uh, seven days a week. And as fast as we can receive doses, we're, we're administering them if, if people want them. And, and, you know, I can tell you that, that the clinics that I've worked at have been full to capacity and we vaccinated everybody who wanted to be vaccinated. And if we'd had more doses at the end of the day, there might have been people in, in the line who, uh, who uh, would have been able to receive them. So that, that's one of the most important things that we can do. We had a couple of slow days at Christmas, but we're world, world class when it comes to uh, vaccine rollouts. We'll be hitting up to our goal is 300,000 a day. Um, the, the other thing that I think we need to keep in mind is that what we want to be able to do is slow the pace of new infections to spread out the number of healthcare workers, for instance, who are going to get infected with Omicron. Because if all of a sudden 50% of, of the healthcare workers who work in hospitals became infected, then there's a risk that there wouldn't be enough nurses to to mm-hmm. work in ICUs and to work in the emergency department. You know, we've certainly seen that at emergency departments in in, in downtown areas and in rural rural areas in rural parts of Ontario and other provinces. Uh, emergency departments um, have had to close twelve hours a day. In some cases, they've closed over long weekends, over the holidays, over over short periods of the holidays because there weren't enough nurses to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have that in the intensive care unit, 
it's a disaster. And and if you have that in an emergency department where they are one or two nurses away from having to close down, it's a disaster. So by slowing down the rate at which society gets infected, you're slowing down the rate at which healthcare workers get infected. And you are increasing the likelihood that you will be able to limp along and maintain an adequate supply of healthcare workers to keep the system running. That's all they're trying to do. So I guess, and I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but I guess if I'm a parent, I guess maybe I'm thinking that like my kid's probably not going to go back in two weeks because I, I just don't see how how we avoid those bad case scenarios you just talk, talked about there because this thing is just so contagious. Yes. Well, it is that contagious. So, So what you're looking for is an improvement in the lag indicators. That means the the number of admissions because we really don't know from the number of tests now although mm-hmm. you know we can we can guess that as the percentage of of positive uh, swabs PCR swabs goes up you know well over 30% and some say it's going to get as high as 50% uh, then we know just how how widespread the infection is, or we can infer how widespread the infection is. But I think a better indicator for us are the lag indicators, meaning hospital admissions and, and ICU admissions. And, and we know they're going up. So you're quite right. Uh, because those indicators, hospital admissions and, and ICU, uh, admissions tend to lag about three weeks behind the, uh, uh-huh. infection rate, then you won't probably know for another week after uh, after the two week period so it might make more sense to to have a three week period to be certain that the uh, that those lag indicators are on the way down uh, and so I, you know I, I think I think you're right and it's by no means certain that that schools will open physical classrooms will be open within two weeks we'll have, just have to wait and see. today that the Canadian Pediatric Society tweeted out saying new data from Ontario shows high electronic learning time is associated with higher levels of symptoms of depression and anxiety in children and youth. So how concerned are you? You know, at some point, do, do you think we need to start talking more about what all of this disruption is doing to children? So, so for example, you hear experts talking about the rise in eating disorders, a widening gap between kids with parents who could pay for tutors, et cetera, and those who can't. And, and if you think that we do need to start having that conversation more, like at what point, when is that point? Jamie, that point was two years ago. Yeah. And it's, and, and it's still an, it's, it, it's, it's still a critical point now. People, you know, kids are suffering and they are, they're a silent group. They, they will show you how much they're suffering. They won't tell you how much they're suffering. And, and yes, we're seeing it. We've talked about it on White Coat Black Art, you know, uh, kids with eating disorders uh, as a direct result of, of COVID anxiety disorders, kids with disabilities, uh, are, are especially suffering during, during COVID. And it's well past time. And, you know, if we care about our children, and, and, you know, I, I'm sure there are people right now who are screaming at me saying, if you care about children, then open up schools. Yeah. And, and I can't argue with that. I can't argue yeah. with the sense of that. I think it's right. This is a pandemic. So going to the grocery store isn't really safe. Going to the pharmacy isn't really safe. But we do those things because they're necessary. And school is necessary, too. When you have both parents working from home trying to manage two young kids... 
I think both situations fail. You don't do very well at your work and you don't do very well uh, with your kids. No one wants online learning, but we just want safe schools. And it's just very frustrating that it hasn't clicked into the government that this is what what is needed to actually make them safe. In terms of when- and also uh, probably worth noting here, disproportionate impact on, on parents who, who work on the front lines, right? Like you don't have the option to be home or or even work from home. This is, uh, I can't imagine how difficult this must uh, be for them. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I don't want this to come out the the wrong way. I, I, I get why we can't just, you know, as we talked about, let this thing rip. But given the spread of Omicron and its apparent lower severity, I wonder if if what, what we also need to do here or, or if, if the way that you're thinking about this is changing, like, could we now think about it as large numbers of less severe cases actually helping us get out of the pandemic? Yeah. So you're asking the herd immunity question. Are we are we inching towards herd immunity? And and I, as I've said, I started by saying I'm an optimist. I'm still an optimist. And and I think that. We are. I think that the more people who are infected, the more people who are who are vaccinated, and I think primarily people should get vaccinated as a way to acquire immunity, the more we are inching closer to the day when COVID of one variant or another will be uh, endemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm an optimist, but but I'm not a virologist. And and from what I have seen and read and heard from from virologists uh, and infectious disease specialists, they say we've seen nothing like, you know, SARS-CoV-2 in the in the history of, of pandemics in its ability to reinvent itself and find new ways of outsmarting our immune system, our respiratory passages, the the treatments that we have. And so I think we have to remain vigilant. Um, but in general, I'm I'm hoping that that the general level of immunity will will increase over the next few months, and that that you know it, it was suggested you know by somebody you know by by some 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 thinkers a lot smarter than I see. See, David Naylor co-wrote uh, an opinion piece saying that this could be the last gasp. You know, I, I'm paraphrasing right. here that that yeah, like it just that, sort of peters out from here. And and let's hope that it is that it does, and that we'll all have a much better middle of 2022 than than it's starting out to be. But I don't know, and I'm not the expert on that. Yes, and I guess we have sort of been in this conversation before, albeit with different tools, right? Like, uh, like vaccines. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so. And you yeah. know what? That's the reason to be the most optimistic. We have, yeah. you know, we started off with lack of PPE and now we have more than adequate PPE. Uh, you know, we have rapid tests. We have, we have PCR testing. We have vaccines. Uh, we have medications that, that could be game changers. So we have lots of reasons to, to, you know, lots of weapons to fight, to fight Omicron or whatever comes next and lots of reasons to be optimistic. Okay, uh, thank you so much for this, uh, Dr. Goldman, uh, as always. And, and I should mention you're, you're doing um, a show a show soon uh, where people can get their questions answered on what to do if they have COVID. So uh, w- when is that? 
That's going to be this week. And our question is basically going to be, I think I've got COVID, now what? And there are lots of people wondering, you know, what the heck? Uh, how many days should I should I isolate? Uh, is it safe for me to return to work? Do I have to prove that I'm, uh, that I'm negative, that I test negative to be able to return to work? Uh, and, you know, if everybody seems to have the same illness in my family, can we assume that I've got COVID? Questions like that. Oh, very good questions. I will definitely be tuning in. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. That is all for today. I'm Jamie Poisson, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is Tuesday morning's Frontburner from CBC News. You can also catch Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Be sure to be listening tonight at 11 as we will have this morning's Frontburner and the headline reading, Dozens Die in Custody After Public Intoxication Arrests. Stay tuned when After 9 resumes. It is Todd Corrigal, the guest this morning for Trudy Clausen. Over the course of a year, the board of directors of a not-for-profit must engage in a variety of important conversations and make critical decisions about the organization. A board calendar is a helpful tool to ensure these important tasks are scheduled at the appropriate times. A board calendar sample is available online from Vantage Point. Check out this and many other valuable tools through the downloadable resources link under media at thevantagepoint.ca. Vantage Point, transforming not-for-profit leadership. Engage your board and align their work with organizational values and vision with Advantage Point's board's fundamentals, roles, and responsibilities. A highly effective and engaged board has clarity around roles and responsibilities and aligns their work and performance with organizational values and vision. Registration, cost, and full details are available through the training link at advantagepoint.ca. Board fundamentals, roles, and responsibilities, January 18th from 5.30 to 8.30 through the advantagepoint.ca. OceanWise is currently hiring for a number of great positions. Their mission is to inspire the global community to increase its understanding, wonder, and appreciation for our oceans. It's work that matters with an organization focused on protecting and restoring the world's oceans, which in turn helps keep our planet alive. To learn more about OceanWise, visit ocean.org. To check out the incredible career opportunities currently available, click on the careers link on the drop-down menu at ocean.org. The Alzheimer's Society of BC is continuing their online dementia education series. These are small group information workshops facilitated to provide opportunities for live discussion. Take in the workshop, Recognizing Your Journey as a Caregiver, on Thursday, January 13th from 2 to 4. Registration and full details on this and other free sessions are available through alzbc.org. More information is also available through the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. Here we are. I'm Trudy Clausen, and my guest today is Todd Corrigal from from the Chamber of Commerce. Sorry, I'm stumbling this morning. I think my mouth was frozen. Uh, <laughs> good morning, Todd. Good morning, Trudy. So, um, can if you are okay, let's start with a little bit. Um, how did you get to be the? I think you're the your p- official title is CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, what what was your path there? You're you're not that old, so not that many years to re- recollect. So, how did you I, end I up there? I appreciate you saying that I'm not that old. I certainly feel much older, and after a few weeks of uh, 
minus 30 weather, I feel very, very old. Oh, my uh, word, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. 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 But uh, I guess it's kind of a meandering <clears throat> route for myself. I was born and raised in Toronto, uh, moved out to Vancouver in 2000, uh, and really started into my career in communications and marketing and branding. Uh, and from there, met my now wife, uh, who is from Prince George, and uh, wanted to move back to Prince George to be close to family and friends. Uh, and so we moved up here. Uh, and I was uh, running, at that point, a fairly successful uh, consultancy agency around uh, communications, marketing, and branding. <clears throat> so, you know, we had access to the airport here, so I was able to fly around the country and do what needed to be done. And a lot of that work at work had focused specifically uh, in the political arena, provincially, federally, uh, and with the Senate as well in Ottawa. Uh, and so had a pretty high exposure to policy, policymakers, uh, how that decision flowed out, how advocacy uh, really did work in some of those arenas. Uh, and then I was afforded the opportunity to join the city of Prince George as the director of communications uh, immediately prior to the uh, Winter Games. Right. Uh, and was there for a short time uh, before moving on to uh, a deputy city manager role in Alberta uh, and some work with the uh, municipal affairs uh, in Edmonton. Uh, and then... Lo and behold, an opportunity uh, presented itself to come back to Prince George, where obviously my wife uh, wanted to be uh, and where she's built her career. And uh, I was able to make that move back to Prince George uh, just five years ago now, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, so I'm really curious. What was your wife's sales job to you for Prince George? (laughs) (laughs) Because she's obviously a very good marketer. Housing affordability. <laughs> Housing affordability. All right. Um, okay. Well, that wouldn't work quite as well these days, would it? Uh, you know, I think we're still. When you look at particularly all the BC assessments that have just come out uh, this week, we're still in a much more amiable position than other uh, jurisdictions across the province um, with the way COVID has gone and the work from home opportunities that present themselves. I think that actually. <laughs> does a better job of positioning Prince George than any campaign that's that's taken place over the years prior to that. The issue is how do we properly leverage that now to access those people who will remain remote work-from-home employees? Okay, but isn't that going... I mean, I know a lot of local people who are not used to seeing their house prices jump, you know, 10 20% in one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're looking at a huge tax bill increase, correct? I mean, how is that going to pan out for the local people? Well, the question becomes, what does city council do? Yes. Uh, so city council has nothing to do with the assessment. That's that's BC assessment that figures that out. Council will now discuss what the tax rate becomes. Mm-hmm. So depending on where council sets that tax rate, and I think we've all seen some of the early uh, discussions and ideas that have come forward from finance and audit, uh, that's a challenging rate. And given a 20, and I know some people in the heart have seen 50 to 100% increases in their assessment, uh, will really dictate uh, what happens through this process. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's quite key in this uh, is remembering that there's still safe restart funds that are available. Uh, by saying that using that last year to get a net zero was kicking the problem down the road is a fallacy in our opinion. Uh, there are opportunities to find revenue streams 
like every business does. Okay, and that's a that brings me to what the Chamber of Commerce is. So, for the average person listening who may may or may not own a business, um, what what does the chamber what what is the role of the chamber in the city? Yeah, so it, it's a challenging question to answer because we go through iterations. So, the, the the basis of our operations is to help support businesses. Uh, in their operations, whether that be through challenging taxation policy, uh, whether that be through working with different branches of government to uh, mitigate taxes and fees or onerous processes. Red tape is the easiest way to put that. Yep. Uh, and then the other side of it, particularly over the last two years, is becoming a marketing arm of our small businesses. So where a business may not have access to the funding and the personnel required to market their, their businesses, that's an opportunity for us to step in and say, here's how we can help leverage your local dollars uh, in securing new local patrons. Yes, and you were certainly doing a lot of that. Can you tell us a little bit about those programs that you were doing, especially at the beginning of the pandemic and, and how they worked out? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, March 20th, 2020, uh, so four or five days after the uh, non-order order to close all non-essential businesses came down, uh, we created Support PG, uh, which was initially what we noticed through the course of that week was sort of a, a, a juggernaut of information that was going out, mm-hmm. nobody managing it, and everybody sort of posting everywhere. So we figured here was an opportunity for us to cache all that information put it to a single source, allow access to that, allow businesses, chamber member or not, to update us on what their plans were and how they were managing through this so that we could help them market that on their behalf. Yes. Uh, So from that infancy stage, uh, we had a number of partners uh, reach out to us and request to come on board and and request to put their uh, muscle, money, and weight behind it. Uh, which was great. So we grew at our peak to about 12 significant partners. Um, and, you know, that, that process lasted essentially until December 31st of, of 2021, uh, which was hyper successful, uh, where we were very successful at the end of, of 21 was securing $100,000 from the federal government, uh, which was announced before uh, the election. Uh, where we were able to turn around and leverage that. So we've, we've sort of started our new campaign, which is called Our Hometown, mm-hmm. uh, which launched two weeks uh, before the end of the year. Unfortunate timing, um, but uh, is really going to be picking up steam here in the coming weeks. Uh, and we hope what that will be doing is generating a huge marketing push uh, as well as some immediate financial benefit to the small businesses uh, in January and February. Okay. Well, we have um, we have about a minute left. I don't know. Is that enough time to tell us a little bit about what my hometown is, is about? Um, it's not enough time. It's not a, Okay. <laughs> How about give me a quick summary then of what Support PG did in act, like on the ground? Yeah, so aggregating it all, um, Support PG was a cache of information that allowed people to understand what businesses were open, what their safety protocols looked like, how you could patronize them easily, 
Uh, it also acted as a single source of information for all government grants, loans, bridge financing, whatever was available in that uh, mode, uh, and also showcased from a marketing perspective uh, opportunities to engage with local businesses and develop contesting uh, where we were able to filter some money from uh, uh, most, most predominantly uh, Coastal GasLink. Okay. All right. Okay. That's, that's good. So we will be back after our break here. I'm talking with Todd Corgill from the Chamber of Commerce. Cold Snap, the Prince George Winter Music Festival, is back for its 15th year. The popular festival runs from January 28th to February 5th. All evening shows and Cold Snap for Kids will be presented at the Prince George Playhouse in front of a reduced capacity audience at a reasonable ticket price and live streamed for a nominal fee. As well, free Cold Snap daytime outreach workshops are scheduled, which will also be live streamed for free. Cold Snap, the Prince George Winter Music Festival, January 28th to February 5th. For more information, visit their website, coldsnapfestival.com. Join Two Rivers Gallery the second Sunday of each month for an in-depth tour. Led by staff and knowledgeable learning and engagement volunteers, the exhibit tour is a great way to discover the gallery while getting a better perspective and understanding of the current exhibits. That's guided tours the second Sunday of the month from 1 to 2 at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. Check them out online as well at tworiversgallery.ca. A solid foundation for new and aspiring not-for-profit managers can mean the difference between moving forward or feeling stuck. Vantage Point's Essentials for New Managers covers tools and approaches to achieve success in new management roles. Take part to dissect topics like your role as a manager and supporting your team's performance. Registration and full details are available at thevantagepoint.ca. Level up your management skills over three Tuesday evening sessions. Essentials for New Managers from Vantage Point, starting February 8th via Zoom. Forecast from Environment Canada. Cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries this morning, then periods of snow this afternoon. Wind at 15K, a high of minus 22 with a wind chill this morning to minus 36 and a risk of frostbite. Snow tonight, wind continuing, a low of minus 24, a wind chill to minus 29 with a risk of frostbite. For Friday, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries, a high of minus 21. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Todd Corgill of the Chamber of Commerce. So, Todd, uh, now's your chance. Tell us about what my hometown is about. Uh, perfect. So, it's our hometown. Uh, oh, our hometown. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We, you know, we, we did actually start with my hometown, but really our hometown is more inclusive. Uh, and we want to make people feel like you're a part of something. Um, so the, the premise of this is, how do we make people aware of our local businesses? How do we help people appreciate the emotional connection that we either know we have or that we don't know that we have with our local businesses? And how do we help them understand that, uh, and, and I hate saying this because it's, it's overused, but now more than ever, uh, <laughs> we need to be doing this to see the long-term viability of these local businesses. So the campaign is rooted in the emotional connection that we can develop with our local businesses. The outcome of that is we are going to be driving towards user-generated content. So how do people engage? Because an organization like CFIS that doesn't necessarily sell something tangible, I mean, there's advertising opportunities certainly, but you're not selling a car. Yeah. Um, versus uh, Jim's clothes closet that has clothing and attire for people at a retail level. So there's different emotional connections that people will associate to a different business. 
much like you would with um, uh, Brink Forest products or uh, you know a steel manufacturer in the BCR. So they're all doing things that are still benefiting our, our community, and we may not be aware of those. So what we're trying to develop here is the user-generated content that shows the value of local business and what those spin-off effects are. So, so there's certainly going to be a myriad of contesting that comes with this. Like I said, we want to pump as much money uh, into the local economy as we, we possibly can within the, the purview of our, our grant uh, submission. Um, but the other side to that is, is helping people understand, you know, we may not have something to sell you necessarily, but don't forget that we sponsor your kids' baseball team or this arts program or this event uh, that takes place to benefit our community. Well, and that is huge because, as so many of us know, who are, you know, people who are in the working in, you know, various sports organizations, arts organizations and whatever, it is usually the small business owners that are supporting us, right? It's rarely, I mean, I don't know, I mean, maybe the bigger companies are in certain other ways, but... But uh, so what, when you're talking um, user-generated content, what does that mean uh, and what will we actually be seeing? Yeah, so we're, we're in the process right now of producing um, a series of, of videos that will be web and uh, TV-based, yep. which help people understand what that user-generated content could look like. Uh, so essentially we'll be sort of benchmarking or, or providing a bit of a guideline uh, for people, and then it's over to the community to uh, create their own selfie videos, uh, their own one-shot videos. Oh, so like post if... them online. Okay, so for instance, if like I buy a bike from Coop's Bikes and I learn about their amazing, um, uh, like an offer that they have, like maybe to, to bring in and exchange your, your new bike for a new one, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Ah, okay. All right. Well, that sounds that sounds unique. So, um, just uh, um, I, I'm just going to segue a little bit. Um, when what is the difference between the chamber and, for instance, downtown PG? That's a good question. Uh, so, downtown Prince George is essentially a destination marketing organization. So, their role is to focus on the geographic areas as defined by the bylaw uh, that are downtown Prince George. Okay. And so their goal is to support. So every business in downtown Prince George, a portion of their taxes goes to fund downtown Prince George, which then goes to fund uh, marketing activations for that predefined business district. Okay. Uh, Our role uh, extends, and and sorry, I should say, and they also take on a myriad of other (laughs) pieces, advocacy, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, community engagement pieces. They, they go beyond uh, marketing uh, strictly that area, and they do a great job of that. Um, out, the difference for us is our geographical boundaries are not confined to a business district right? as much as they are confined to not encroaching on another chamber's geographic area. So, for example, uh Within our area, Valmont, uh, Mackenzie, uh, Vanderhoof, and Quinnell all have chambers. Yes. So that basically defines our geographic area. We okay. do not want to encroach on their areas. I see. And our role, uh, at least under my leadership, has been much more focused on the government advocacy uh, area. 
I see. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, I know, okay, so having said that, um, I mean, you do have a lot of businesses that are in the downtown Prince George area, and uh, I mean, over the past year, we've had so many of the um, so many news articles, certainly, and a lot of complaints about the downtown and the fact that we have a large homeless population. I mean, maybe it's it's come down a little bit since since fall, but how has that impacted your members here, and and what kind of work have you been doing there? Yeah, so this is a challenging one because it was very easy, you know, 8, 10, 12 years ago to say uh, homelessness, mental health, addictions, and uh, crime were this downtown Prince George issue. Mm -hmm. And they are not. It has proliferated throughout our community, uh, and that's due in large part to a lack of action in a lot of different areas. Mm -hmm. So what we are seeing is encampments off of Central, encampments in Carter Light, encampments in Westgate, uh, you know, it has truly, and, and the heart, sorry, is, is, is one of the prime areas. It's proliferated throughout the community, and the challenges on this are not small. Certainly the downtown gets uh, a larger or disproportionate percentage of the media coverage because there's uh, professional services offices, there's retail, there's restaurants, uh, there's more people who are going there for those services than and also a greater, they are to yeah. Westgate or the Heart. And also a greater impact, I'm guessing, on the storefronts of businesses, right? Whereas, yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's. I, I think the crime aspect is is uh, pretty evenly spread when push comes to shove. Uh, mm-hmm. But from a tourism, tourism economy, visitors to PG. You know, downtown certainly captures more of the discussion around that because that's predominantly where people will go because, you know, and, and here's another overused statement, downtown is the heartbeat of a community. <laughs> and that's, that's true in a community of 5,000 just like it is in a community of 5 million. Yes. Um, so your downtown generally becomes a reflection of your community. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly no shortage of people who you see uh online talking about Prince George that say, oh, you know, it wasn't great. Downtown was, was overrun with this or that or the other thing. And it's unfortunate because it's a very, very small subset in a very, very small area. But again, the larger issue is it's gone mismanaged or misled for so long that we've arrived where we have arrived today. Okay. All right. Well, it's time for another break. I'll be back and we'll talk about uh, the future and some of the future challenges that you see. And I'm talking with Todd Corrigal from the Chamber of Commerce. Happy New Year from Two Rivers Gallery. They're back and can't wait to see you virtually or in person at some of their exciting winter programs, from life drawing to Saturday morning art classes to embroidered photography and more. There's something for everyone to keep busy and stay inspired through these long winter months. Browse their list of classes online at tworiversgallery.ca/programs. Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. Registration is now open for iSpark 
Park's BC Indigenous Athlete Development Camp for Swimming. The event is being held on January 15th and 16th at the Sam Lindsay Aquatic Centre in Kitimat. Male and female Indigenous youth ages 10 through 17 are invited to participate, all levels from beginners to experienced swim club athletes. Registration and full details are available through icepark.ca. The BC Indigenous Athlete Development Camp for Swimming, January 15th and 16th in Kitimat. Registration deadline is 4 p.m. January 12th. The Ministry of Education has announced a delayed start for students in the province. Students will now be returning to school on Monday. This is allowing schools time to prepare for the new enhanced measures in response to the Omicron variant. Additional information regarding changes to the SD57 Communicable Disease Guidelines for K-12 settings, frequently asked questions related to COVID-19 in schools, and suggested activity for children during the extended winter break can be found on the district's website, sd57.bc.ca. Learn the art of salsa dance the second and fourth Tuesday of each month at Amanika Art Center. This drop-in fitness class is offered by donation to ensure accessibility for all. Space is limited, open to all ages with no necessary experience, but you must have proof of vaccination. Take time for some self-care. Salsa Tuesdays, the second and fourth Tuesday evening of each month from 7 to 9 at Amanika Art Center, 369 Victoria Street. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, we're back for our last 8 or 10 minutes. Um, I've got Todd Corrigal from the Chamber of Commerce as my guest. And uh, we've been talking a little bit about what they've been doing uh, throughout the, well, certainly the past two years of the pandemic and uh, some of the challenges of downtown. Um, what are, like in the future, what have, I know that you were mentioning the your program, Our Hometown, uh, and that initiative. Um, but what, what are some of the other challenges that businesses are facing and, and what is the Chamber sort of, uh, like what are some of the other main things that you're working on? Yeah, so uh, obviously the, the homelessness, mental health, and addictions piece is something that uh, that we've been pushing quite hard on. Okay, um, you know what, I'm going to ask you a little bit more. How How does that impact businesses? And if you can expand on that just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it, it's twofold. Uh, the first is we have a number of businesses who are very compassionate to the issues that are plaguing this. And their voices are not being heard. So whether that uh, moving check offices to a region that has a daycare center uh, and a senior center, or whether that's people who are being forced to set up uh, encampments in vestibules of businesses uh, because they don't have access uh, to the services or aren't aware of the services or are unwilling to utilize the services. Uh, so there's that immediate impact that comes with it. The tertiary piece that comes from this is that information flows very quickly in today's day and age. And so people hear sometimes anecdotal information, sometimes factual information, and they make decisions based on that. And so businesses become encumbered by things that may not necessarily be true. Uh, So it becomes a much more challenging job to change perceptions than it does to attack some of the issues. Yeah, so like one of the things, I mean, I've never had a problem coming downtown. It's not always it's not always perfectly, you know, you know, sunshine and roses, but but, but that's one thing that I know for myself, uh, perception is a lot worse than than the reality sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean and, and it's proportionate. I mean, I grew up in Toronto. I lived in Vancouver for a number of years. 
those are two centers that have uh, extreme challenges when it comes to homelessness, certainly in Vancouver, I suspect, has a much larger issue when it comes to the drug addiction side of it, or at least the drug addicted that are living on the streets. Mm-hmm. Again, we've failed miserably in this area in that we don't have the mental health support. Well, and to- I, yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like, I mean, surely at some point, the whole mental health crisis and the overdose crisis is impacting businesses, not just at their storefront, um, but also inside, because we've got people struggling with issues who are employees of local businesses as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it amplifies in the cold. And and certainly uh, throughout the holidays, it was not uh, unheard of, particularly the, the cold snap that went started in mid-December and and is currently expiring, uh, to see people who were certainly on the streets who were either currently in a state of of, uh, intoxication or were severely mentally ill, and I know I've gotten to know some of them, and some of them are just severely mentally ill, when they would stumble into a store to Mm -hmm. get warm. Uh, and, And again, whether that's being intoxicated or mentally ill is inconsequential. The fact is they're going into a storefront and it's putting a store owner, it's putting their employees at potentially high levels of risk because they don't know who they're dealing with. And it should not be passed on to the businesses to solve these issues. Had we had appropriate levels of support, had we truly implemented the four pillars approach and not gone whole hog on harm reduction, we may see different outcomes at this point. But there is a huge conversation and a massive advocacy effort that needs needs to take place. We are seeing historic overdose levels across B.C., the highest we've ever seen and some of the highest in the country. And I appreciate that there's a drug toxicity issue that plays with this, but with safe supply has to come some learning aspects to find root cause for addiction and is somebody just addicted as a result of something through their their life and their childhood that we can work towards correcting and getting them help? Or is somebody so severely mentally ill that they turn to drugs as the only escape from their mental illness, in which case we need to look at other solutions? Mm -hmm. Okay. So shifting a little bit, um, what are some other challenges that you are uh, looking at dealing with in in the next year or so? Yeah, I mean, obviously COVID has, has created a... Uh, a much easier way for people to shop online, sometimes out of necessity and sometimes uh, not. Uh, That is going to be something that has to be combated at a local level. Uh, So one of the biggest issues is the human element, which plays into our hometown uh, programming as well, uh, is immediately eliminated when you shop online. I don't care how good algorithms are at Amazon and how personal, quote-unquote, they can make your shopping experience. It's not the same as going into a local store, mm-hmm. being with one of their employees or the owner of that store, uh, and figuring out the best solution for you. Otherwise, you're reading bot reviews online and maybe not getting the full picture. Uh, so helping local businesses understand maybe what the future opportunity looks like. Maybe mm-hmm. their market should expand beyond the boundaries of Prince George. Perhaps they can be stealing 
uh, customers from different regions from that they're not aware of yet. Or stealing cust- customers from Amazon. Exactly. <laughs> one thing that's... Gaming customers from Amazon would be the better way. <laughs> okay, yes. Well, because one thing that's actually I found myself, uh, and I just have a few uh, little little time left here, is that the, the more shopping that I've done with Amazon, the less enthralled I've become with it. And it's like, ugh. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, I did the same as everybody. I did quite a bit of Amazon shopping, and now it's like, ugh. It's not that great. So um, just any, we've got about 30 seconds left here, Todd. Um, Any last words I'll give to you? Perfect. Yeah, we would encourage everybody to engage with your local business. Learn about your local business owner. Learn about the teams that they've built here locally. It is vitally important, particularly right now over these next six to seven weeks uh, through this Omicron wave, which we hope will expire in six to seven weeks, uh, that we are looking to our local businesses, that we are engaging with them, that we are understanding the value that they bring to us. All right. I have a two-year-old daughter. She's going to be looking for a part-time job in you know a decade plus from now. Uh, I want her to have the opportunity to work for a local company. Excellent. Thank you so much, Todd. Thank you. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Echo Wiley, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFIS-FM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.